Please turn your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 5. We are continuing again in our study in Samuel. I know some of you may not have been at Bethany as we began the study last year. And let me kind of remind you where we are in the study. This, the series is called the, the Covenant King. The Covenant King. And there's kind of four sections that we have identified in First and Second Samuel. The, the first section is a section that we're in now. We've kind of identified each section with a person. The first section, we, we talk about Samuel, the first eight chapters of First Samuel. Samuel, as we look at the people desiring a king like the nations. That's what we see in these first eight chapters. And in the second section, we look at Saul. And we see what it looks like when you get a king like the nations. And then in the next section, and of course some of these, the characters overlap in the different sections, but the the third section we focus on David and what it looks like to have a king of the covenant. And then in the last section we're going to think about Christ and talk about desiring the, the king of the new covenant. So Samuel, desiring a king like the nations, Saul, getting a king like the nations, David, getting a king of the covenant, and then Christ, desiring the king of the new covenant. But we're here in the first section, desiring a king like the nations, and as we're in this section, we're talking about what it looks like whenever the people are unwilling to worship God as their king. Last time we were in 1 Samuel 4, and the message was entitled, When God's Glory Departs. And we saw that the, the people brought the Ark of the Covenant, God's Ark, to the battlefield. And they are defeated, and the Philistines take their Ark. And we, we saw that at the end of the story, Eli's daughter-in-law uttered these words. She said that the glory of God has departed. And what we see in the chapter is that God's glory had departed a long time ago. And we ask the question of ourselves, what does it look like when God's glory, that is the the manifestation of his presence, what does it look like, what does worship in a place look like where God's glory has departed? And we've talked about different characteristics, what it looks like when God's glory departs a place, what that worship looks like. We talked about how there's a lack of repentance of sin. We talked about how there's man-made religion. We talked about there was a lack of awareness of God's holiness. Now, today, we're going to kind of see the the mirror image of that. We're going to say, okay, what does it look like whenever God's presence, people are aware of of God's presence and they don't like it? What does worship look like there? And we're going to talk about what it looks like to stand before a holy God. So, if you are able to, if you'd stand with me as we begin reading in 1 Samuel 5, we're looking at... Samuel 5, 6, and the first part of 7. We're not going to read all of those verses. Uh, I would encourage you to begin reading 9, 10, and 11, uh, eight, uh, 7, 8, 9, as, uh, as preparation for the weeks ahead, but we're not going to be able to cover every, every verse in terms of uh, covering it, but we're going to look at every chapter. Here's what we see beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, the Philistines have just captured the ark of God. It says in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 5, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both in Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. And so they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they, in the next verses we see they uh, send it to Gath and then they send it to Ekron. And God's hand of judgment continues against the people. We come down to verse 1 of chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there is never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box on it, at, at its sides, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering, then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not by his hand that struck us. That it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. And then they do so, and we come down to verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The, the cart came into the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Come down to verse 19. The Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they sent the messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim and saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. 
From that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You may be seated. May God encourage our souls through the reading of his word this morning. Father, open your text to us this morning. Help us to stand before you today, not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by asking the question that the men of Beth Shemesh ask at the end of chapter 6. And and look at it with me, if you will, in in verse 20. I I want this this question that they ask to kind of govern our our thinking as we think about this text this morning. They, They say, as they've encountered the holiness of the Lord, they say, Who is able to stand before the Lord this holy God? That's the question I want us to ask this morning as well. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? As we think about the the story of the people of Israel to this point, we understand that they have encountered the holiness of God several times as as we've gone through the the Scripture up to this point. For example, at the end of the book of Exodus, remember what happens? At the end of the book of Exodus, the the people have just sinned with the the golden calf, and now they're preparing to enter the promised land, and God says, I I, I can't go with them. I, I can't go with you. Remember, he says in Exodus 33, I will not go up among you. Why? Lest I consume you along the way. Because of my holiness, and and by the way, I'm going to talk more about holiness later, but holiness simply means God's devotion to his glory. Because of my my holiness, I I can't continue to to dwell with you. And Moses, as he thinks about that reality, says this to the Lord. He pleads with him. He says, If your presence will not go with me, don't bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I don't want to be in the land without you. There's no reward if you aren't there. And the book of Leviticus, what is the book of Leviticus all about? The book of Leviticus is about how a sinful people can live in the presence of a holy God, isn't it? And what does the book of Leviticus point us to? It points us to the person of Jesus Christ. The people are able to stand before God or be in his presence in the book of Leviticus because there's atonement made for their sin, but that atonement is based upon the future atonement that Jesus Christ makes. And so this morning, the question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The answer is all those who have recognized that that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sins and have placed their faith in him and, and now are resting in him and his holiness. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? For some people, even asking that question is offensive. They say, look, God doesn't judge me. I don't need to worry about God's holiness. God's okay with me, and I'm okay with God. God loves me, and so because God loves I don't even need to worry about his. How dare you even question whether or not I can stand before God? Such people don't understand the gospel, right? The gospel message isn't about God becoming like us. The, the, The message of the gospel is like, look, here's how a holy God allows you to come into his presence 
through providing the, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, so you and I can be in him. Some of us, though, as we ask the question, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God, we'd say, well, I, I can't on my own, but I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, but then we just stop there. We think, well, the gospel is just about me getting forgiven, but the gospel is about more than just be, me being forgiven. The, the gospel is about me growing in holiness, being more and more devoted to God and his glory as I'm in Christ. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Well, I can as I'm in Christ, but I don't stay as I am. I'm transformed by his grace. Because I'm in Christ, that doesn't mean I can worship him however I want. It doesn't mean I, I can worship the triune God however I desire. It means because I'm in Christ, I approach God with fear and reverence and love, becoming more like him by his gracious work in my life. The reality is, as we're brought into an awareness of the holiness of God, one of two things is going to happen. And that's kind of the main idea that I want us to think about this morning. Here's, here's a central idea that I want us to think about. When confronted with the holiness of God, God's absolute devotion to his glory, when confronted with the holiness of God, we will either decide to flee from his presence or devote ourselves to him in worship. As we're brought into an awareness and confronted with an awareness of the holiness of God, his absolute infinite perfection, one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to flee from his presence and say, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to contemplate that. I don't want to know about that. I'm going to flee from that. Or we're going to say, I want to be devoted to the same things that God is devoted to, and we're going to grow in holiness. So this morning, we're going to look at people who are confronted with the holiness of God and, and flee, and then we're going to look at what it looks like to be devoted to the holiness of God. And that brings us to the first point from chapters 5 and 6. When confronted, first point is this, when confronted with the holiness of God and all its implications, some flee. That's our first point. When confronted with the holiness of God and all of the implications of the holiness of God, some flee. And we're going to look at chapters 5 and 6, and there's kind of four scenes that I want you to look at in these chapters with me. The first scene takes place in verses 1 through 7 of, of chapter 5. This you could just title, if you're taking notes, the, the Ark in Ashdod. And what happens with the Ark in Ashdod? Remember, the Ark is this gold-covered box. It's three and three-quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide. It's, and it contains the, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments. And this, this ark, remember, it had been brought into battle by the Israelites. They kind of viewed it as their, their trinket, this thing that would bring them good luck. They said, well, if we bring the ark, God will have to defeat our enemies. That's not what happens. The Philistines defeat the Israelites, and what do they do? They take the ark, and they take it to Ashdod here in verses 1 through 7. Ashdod is a city in Philistine territory. It's about three miles from the, the coast, and there in Ashdod is this temple temple devoted to the god Dagon. Dagon was a Canaanite deity. Apparently the Philistines kind of adopted worship of him whenever they came into this territory. And, and there's this temple here. And the interaction with God and this idol is, is tragically comical, isn't it? See, the Philistines take the ark and they place it in the temple. And the belief is that as they have this ark there in 
the, the temple, now this deity that they've conquered is going to have to, to serve them. They're kind of in control of things now. And so they, they place in the temple of Dagon, and they're adding to their, their superpowers, they think. And they, they come in, and the next morning, what's happened? Dagon is in a position of, of worshiping the Israelite God. He's fallen down before the Ark of the Covenant. So what do you do when your idol falls down? Pick it back up. Place it down there. Then the next morning, what happens? Well, doggone, Dagon, done, gone down again, right? <laughs> there he is. His head and his hands are chopped off. It's another sign in ancient Near East of, of someone having control over another. It's what they do to conquered kings. And now this, this God, he can't, he can't think, he can't act, and what do you do then? Well, what do they do? Not, not, in fact, not only does, does God do that, he, he afflicts them with these, these tumors. And we don't know exactly what, what this, this reference is, but obviously some sort of painful swelling takes place. And so what do they do? Now, what's happened is they've been confronted with the holiness of God. There's this, this God devoted to his glory. He's not going to allow himself to be placed in proximity with other gods. In fact, the text tells us that even to this day when this is being written, the Philistines remember what's happened. They don't even step on the threshold so, uh, of the temple where this took place. What happens whenever you're confronted with the holiness of God? Well, what the Philistines here and Ashdod decide to do is flee. God has made a mill. Look, I, I'm not going to be, I, my holiness means that I'm not going to be placed just kind of next to other gods and placed on a shelf with other gods. You can worship this God and worship me. That's not permissible. But instead of thinking through the implications of that, the Philistines say, we're out of here. Get this God away from us. And so that brings us to the second section, right? In the second section, we see in verses 8 through 12, the Ark and Gath and Ekron. These are two Philistine cities that are a little further inland, close to one another. And a similar thing takes place. They, they uh, have the Ark there in their presence, verses 8 through 9. It's, it's there in uh, Gath, and as it's there in Gath, they're also afflicted with, with tumors. And so they say, well, we got to get it off, uh, away from us. And so they, verse 8, they, they send it off and let it, I'm sorry, this is um, verse, verse, um, verse 9. It's, it's there. It's causing this, this great panic. He's afflicting the men of the city, young and old. Tumors broke, broke out. And so verse 10, they send it away. They send it to Ekron. It arrives in Ekron. The people of Ekron, not too happy about being confronted with the holiness of God, are they? Get it out of here. You brought it around to, to, to us, to the ark of the God of Israel, to kill us and our people. And they, they, they said, send it away. Get rid of it. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. Because everyone there either had, all the men of the city either had tumors and were in pain or were dead. So here again, second section of this story. People are confronted with the holiness of God. And as they're confronted with the holiness of God, something becomes very clear. You are not in right relationship with this God. Whatever it takes to please this God, you have not done. And again, instead of confronting what that means and working, okay, well, how do I get right with this God? What, what do I need to do? Instead, they say, get him away from us. Let's flee his presence. 
That brings us to a third section. Look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6. Here in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, uh, again, that the Philistines are making sure that this, this, this God gets away from them. They say, okay, we need to remove him from our presence. And so they get these two milk cows. They, they consult their religious leaders. They say, what do we do? They say, okay, get these two milk cows who, are, who have calves and leave the calves at home and put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart that these two, two cows, milk cows, are, are carrying and see what happens. And if the milk cows go... Home, or go home, then we know that this has just happened to us by chance. But if they go on to Israelite territory and take the Ark of the Covenant with them, we recognize that this is something that God has, has been about. And, and they decide to, to make these ten golden images, five of the tumors and five of, of mice, that apparently the mice were somehow connected with the plague that the Lord was bringing upon them. And again, they're confronted as, as the milk cows go into Israelite territory the Philistines are confronted with this reality. Okay, this, this is a God who won't be placed upon a shelf with other gods. He's a God with whom we are not in right relationship with, and he is a God who is sovereign over all things. But instead of confronting what that means, what do they do? They flee his presence. It's a dangerous thing to do, right? When confronted with the reality that things aren't right between you and the Lord, it's a dangerous thing to, to not wrestle with what that means, to, to think through all of its implications. Uh, my, my dad, whenever he would teach Sunday school lessons, would listen to his teaching uh, that was recorded later. I, I, I cannot listen to myself preach a sermon. You have my sympathy. Um, but, you know, I hear my voice, and I hear how I word things, and I hear how I don't word things, and how I whatever, and I think, oh, that's painful, right? I, I can't do it. And what is that mentality? It's almost like I believe if I don't listen to it, it doesn't exist, right? The, 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 the difficulties I have sometimes speaking or communicating or whatever. The problem is you don't improve if you don't do that, right? My dad, being the engineer mentality, he would listen to his messages. Okay, this, I need to do this better. I need to say this differently. I need to spend less time here and more time here. And he improved as a teacher. When it comes to our relationship with God, sometimes as we're confronted with a great chasm that exists between where we are and where God is, sometimes we think, well, I just, I just don't want to think about it. I don't want to contemplate it. I don't want to, I don't want to confront the reality of what it means that I'm not in right relationship with God. And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. The fourth section, we see the ark return to Israel. And you think, well, surely now, now we're in a place where the, the people of God are going to be confronted with God's holiness, and now they're going to actually worship rightly, right? Well, let's see. Look at verse 13. It says the the ark arrives in Beth Shemesh. This is the edge of Israelite territory here. And it, it says the people are reaping, and it's, it's, they're there during the, in the, during the, wheat, uh, the wheat harvest, and they lift up their eyes, and they see the ark, and they rejoice. And you think, well, that's, that's a good sign. They rejoice to see it. And then not only do they rejoice to see it, it says that they offered a sacrifice in verse 14. It says there was a great stone there. They split up the wood. They offered the cows as a burnt offering. And they go, okay, well, that's good, right, Daniel? I mean, they they rejoice, they offer a sacrifice to God. And in fact, verse 15 just describes all how 
excited they are. They, they took down the ark of the Lord. The, they put the box there, and they, they set it up on this big stone, and everyone's offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. So that's a good thing, right, Daniel? No, this is not a good thing, as we're about to find out. You say, well, how can that not be a good thing? They're excited, they're recognizing. No, because they're not worshiping God in obedience. See, if you look more carefully, you'd realize this is not worship as God has prescribed worship to be. They're offering milk cows as a sacrifice. What does Leviticus 1 say that burnt offerings are to be? They're, they're to be male. And so, for those of you who aren't biology majors, a milk cow is not a bull, right? This is not what there's to be offering. I, was, I had to look it up. I'm not a biology. <laughs> but what else? You said, well, ark on a great stone. That's good, right? They're excited. Well, look, this is not, this is not excitement of worship. Beth Shemesh is a city. We know from Scripture that the, the Levite family of the Kohathites were in charge of, and their, their whole deal was they were in charge of taking care of the ark, but Numbers tells us that the ark isn't to be looked on. The ark is to be covered as it's transported and stuff, and what are they? They put it on a big rock. Hey, everyone, look at the ark. This is the exact opposite of what God said worship of him was, was to be like. This is not true worship. And what takes place? Go down to verse 19. It says, God struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked upon the ark of the Lord. And maybe this means looking inside of it. Maybe it just means this display that they weren't supposed to be doing. This, the, the, the ark of God, God in his presence, is not some tourist attraction. God strikes down 70, and there's some question around how many exactly. Some translations would say 70. Some would say 50,000. 70 seems to be correct. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then they, we come to verse 20, this verse that we've already looked at, and they ask as they did in chapter 4, a good question, but they come with a wrong answer shown by their second question. The right question is, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And what's their next question? Who, to whom shall he go up away from us? Let's get rid of him. You see, when confronted with the holiness of God, and all of the implications for what that means in terms of our worship and, and how we live and how we think, many people are going to say, look, I, I don't want any of it. I want to flee from it. This, that the presence of God among his people here is not a pleasant thing. Who can we pawn off this ark on? Now, sometimes, or, or here's, here, here's the, the doctrinal truth here. The awareness of God's holiness forces us to confront important truths about God and about ourselves. The people should have realized whenever they were in Ashdod, okay, God is not a God that you can put on a shelf with other gods, but they, they don't. They, they flee. As they were confronted with the holiness of God and recognized that they were not in right relationship with God, they should have said, how do we repent and get right with God? That's not what they do. They flee. As they recognized that God was sovereign over not just, this, this God was sovereign not only over the Israel territory, but over the Philistine territory as well, they should have said, okay, what do we do? How do we repent and get right with this sovereign God? The people of Israel, as they recognized that their worship, although 
super exciting worship and, and, and really zealous worship wasn't true worship of Yahweh God and that God was calling them to worship him in spirit and in truth, what should they have done? They should have repented and changed. And what do they do instead when they're confronted with the holiness of, the, of God? They say, how do I get away from this? The reality is that an awareness of God's holiness, his absolute perfection and complete devotion to that perfection should force us to confront important truths about him and ourselves, and we should do that. Now, we're going to talk more about holiness in just a second. But I want to first talk about what it looks like to flee God's holiness, because that's where some of us are this morning, right? We're fleeing God's holiness. God in his grace has confronted us with his holiness, and we're saying, get away from us. So when I put God on a shelf with other gods in my life, what am I doing? I'm I'm fleeing his holiness and its implications. I've got God on this shelf, but I also have my my money, got my family, got my self-esteem, got my career, got my hobbies. And as long as God is cool with all those other things, God and I are fine as well. But here's where some of us are this morning. Some, in some of our lives, God is like, he's toppling our, our idols. And those idols are having to, to, to fall face down before the one true God. And what are we doing? We're desperately trying to prop up those idols, continue to keep the idols back on track so that we can keep everything together, our God and our hobbies and our idols and my idol of family, my idol of self-esteem and prestige, and it's not working. And it's not going to work because God is kind and he's not going to allow himself to be worshipped along with other gods. When I attempt... I want to say this really carefully. When I attempt to have God become devoted to me instead of me devoted to God, I'm fleeing his holiness. The thinking that happens in a lot of churches that would call themselves evangelical churches right now, the thinking is this. The thinking is God is ultimately devoted not to his glorious perfections, but God's ultimate devotion is to me. Instead of, instead of, instead of me, by, by God, God and his grace, changing me to become more like him, what we believe is that God is going to, to no longer be devoted to his holiness and instead begin to be devoted to me and my sin. Again, I want to be careful how I say this, but, but this, is, this reality is, is affecting churches in some very profound ways. E- even this morning in Washington, there's a, there's a new church starting that, that's, that's devoted to this type of thinking. That's saying, look, it's, it's okay for me to live however I desire. Instead of, me become, bec- instead of me becoming like God, I want God to become committed to me and how I want to live. The gospel says, come to God as you are. The gospel is not, come to God however you want and make him become more like you. This is wrong thinking. It reflects the heart of a person who isn't in Christ. We don't come to the point of, of uh, 
of salvation unless we recognize our sin and seek forgiveness through the shed blood of, of Jesus Christ. That's the reality of the gospel, and that's where I believe, and I, you know, honestly, I know I'm going to get pushed back. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor of a church that believes that God's word is true in all areas of life, and I'm going to, people are going to be like, how dare you say those things? If that's true for me, we're like, no one should be shocked that I believe these things, right? If that's true for me, I can only imagine what it's true like for you in your workplaces and your schools. I, I am aware of the difficulty you face to, to a small degree. But here's, here's the reality. I cannot, if I'm going to be confronted with the holiness of God, I can't in any area of life say, well, I want this, God wants this. As I'm confronted with his holiness, I think God needs to become more like me. That's the reality of the world in which God has, has placed us. Do you not know? Here's, here's, here's God's love. He warns us in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such what? were some of you, like in, in the past, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so if you tell a person, look, you're a thief, stay a thief, no problem, God doesn't care, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're a thief, repent of your sin, place your, you, don't have to, you don't have to become someone you're not at this point. You place your faith in Jesus Christ and allow him to sanctify you, be, be in him, be more devoted to his glory by God's grace. Let me, I need to go on to the second point. But the bottom line is some of us are trying to prop up our false God, our false gods, and it's not working by God's grace. Here's the second truth I want us to think about. Number two, when confronted with the holiness of God, we must worship by devoting ourselves to loving what he loves with an all-consuming zeal. Remember what we talked about worship uh, when we were back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we said uh, biblical worship is, is contemplating who God is and responding with our whole being to that truth. So we begin with who God truly is, and then we respond to that. So if you, you lose either one of those, you don't have true worship. So if you just kind of have this zeal with, without contemplating truth, that's not worship. And if you just have this head knowledge with no response, that's not true worship either. True worship requires both realities, contemplating who God is and responding with worship. Now, before we go to the text, before we continue in the text, we need to understand what we mean by this word, holy. What we mean by the word, holy. We've sung it a lot this morning, right? We've prayed it. We've, I've used it a lot. But do, do we really understand what that word means? In fact, imagine if a, a kid in the foyer after church came up to you and said, hey, uh, Pastor Daniel kept using that word holy. He was saying holy, holy. He said holy like three times in that song. What does that mean? What is holy? What would you say? Could, could you explain holiness in a way that a, a young child could understand it? Sometimes you might say, well, it's, it's being really good. You know, it's being super moral. Like, imagine a really good person now. A holy person is even better than that. And that's it's not totally wrong, but it's, it's not a biblical understanding fully of, of holiness. In fact, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote a book that I think was the most helpful book I ever read on God's holiness. It really helped me, especially in the beginning of the book, get my head around what that means. The book's called Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson. And he, he notes that sometimes we define holiness as, as separate from, or like separate from sin, and that's a part of it. 
But is that the best way to grasp holiness? Ferguson says holiness is not just about separation, but about devotion. Devotion to what? Here's what he writes. It's about devotion within the triune God, God the, God, the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He says it's devotion within the triune God, the perfectly pure devotion devotion of each of the three persons of the Trinity to the other two. It is the sheer intensity of that devotion that causes angels to veil their faces. We see a glimpse of that in human relationships, right? As you're holy, you're devoted, right? You're not just separate, you're devoted. Uh, Whitney's not in here this morning, so I can talk about her. Uh, imagine, imagine if Whitney expressed some frustration in our marriage relationship. This is a hypothetical. Imagine she expressed some frustration about how I was operating in the marriage relationship. She said, you know, Daniel, I don't think you're devoted to me in the way that you should be. You don't, I'm not enjoying our relationship the way that I like to. I said, look, Whitney, uh, hello, I'm devoted to you. I'm not dating other women, right? That's devotion. She says, well, I mean, devotion isn't less than that for sure, but devotion isn't defined by just not dating other people in our marriage relationship. Devotion is, is that me? Devotion is, is defined by being passionately focused on me, Whitney would say to me, and she'd be right. Here's what Here's what Ferguson goes on to say. He says, if this is what holiness means in God, then in us it, it must, as devotion to the triune God, if that's what it means for God, then for us, for us, it must also be a corresponding, deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to him, a belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. Simply it means being entirely his, so that all we do and all we possess are his. We come to think all of our thoughts and build our lives on this foundation, just like in the, the, the temple Holy objects were objects that were devoted to the service of worship of God. That's what it means for us to be holy as well. He says, simply put, and this is the, the, the definition we can give to a, a person, no matter how old they are, that I think they can grasp. To be holy, to be sanctified, is in simple terms to be devoted to God. God is perfectly devoted to his glory. And we must be too. And he invites us to participate in worship of him as we're devoted to that which is of supreme value himself. And God is devoted to his glory and he's actively helping his people to grasp his holiness as what he's working for. In John chapter 14, Jesus says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that, that these also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you've loved me before the, before the foundation of the world. That's what God is doing in our lives, allowing us to behold his glory and to behold his holiness to be changed, to become more devoted to him. How sad would it be how sad and how tragic would it be if God were devoted to your glory? What a terrible eternity would face us. We were reading our family devotions last night from Luke 16, and just the story after story in that section of how materialism will not bring eternal happiness. And 
How sad would it be if God, how tragic would it be if God allowed you to keep propping up your idols, worshiping them, being devoted to them? Look at these two verses in chapter 7. We don't get the full picture here. You get more, as we, and we'll see it as we go through the book of Samuel, that, that worship is about devotion. We're going to see that David is devoted with his whole heart. Saul is kind of partially devoted at, at one point, but then falls away. And, and we'll see the people here and the rest of the, the story aren't devoted to God. So true worship is defined by, worship, by devotion. It says the men of Kiriath-Jerim, this is another Levitical town, they, they come and they take up the ark of the Lord, they bring it to the house of Abinadab, and Abinadab is probably a, a Levite there, that, that name would have been, uh, Eleazar would have been a common Levite name, and what do they do? What, what do they do to Eleazar? It says they consecrated him. What does that mean? It means they devoted him. They set him aside as, as holy, to the Lord. And that's where the ark remains. They don't ask the ark to leave. They don't say, we don't, we don't want to contemplate the holiness of God. They say, okay, we're going to devote ourselves, and this man in particular, to caring for the ark. Contemplating the holiness of God causes us to respond by devoting ourselves to that which he is devoted to. A couple things about worship I want us to think about. We see, as if we think about worship here in 1 Samuel, that worship is fueled by love. Worship is fueled by God's love, by God's love for his glory, by God's love for his holiness, and God's love for us. We also see here, and we'll talk more about this as we go through 1 Samuel, but we also see not only is worship fueled by God's love, God's love for his holiness and God's love for us, worship is also regulated by his word. You don't get to just sacrifice some milk cows and say, God, be happy with that. You come to God's word and you say, okay, God, what do you say that worship is to be like? And then finally, as we think about worship, we see that worship is refined by God's mercy. Our worship is refined by his mercy. Maybe this morning you say, look, Daniel, who was able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I can't. As I think about the great chasm that exists between God's devotion to his glory and mine, that is an insurmountable chasm. There is no way that I can ever be holy like God is holy, and, and I, I just should give up. Brothers and sisters, here's the beauty of the gospel. God is not going to leave you stranded. God is not going to leave his, his children to drink muddy water. He's going to lead them to the spring of eternal life that's only found in him. And so, yeah, your, your worship is not perfect, your worship will never be perfect, but by God's grace, he will be continuing to grow you in your devotion to him. And this isn't about just doing ex external things. So uh, I used to like um, pay attention to the first three quarters of the sermon. Now I'm making it to 80% of the sermon before I start thinking about lunch, uh, which is further than me this morning sometimes. But, uh, but you say, okay, no, it's not about that. It's about I love God more today than I did 10 years ago. I'm more devoted, I've built my life more upon the foundation of the beauty of God than I, than I used to. I understand his infinite perfection 
more today than I did last week. I've beheld some things about him and his beauty and his holiness that I'm more devoted to him than I have ever been in the past. I have fewer things holding me to this world than I have ever had before because I see the absolute garbage of everything compared to him. My, my Dagons are, are all gone as I, as I contemplate their, their heads and their hands and their feet. Everything's cut off because only God takes residence in my heart. God in his grace is going to continue to refine our worship by his mercy. It's not just about hating sin. Yes, God has an inexhaustible hatred of sin, and we must as well. But it's also about God's inexhaustible love of his people because we are in his son. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, says the consideration of God's holiness, his devotion to recognizing the worth of his great name, is central to right worship. The idea, he writes, of holiness is so central to biblical teaching that it is said of God, holy is his name. Brothers and sisters, let's devote ourselves. As we see what God loves, let's be consumed by what he loves as well, the glory of his great name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you allow us to come into your presence. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? It is not us. We only stand here this morning before you because we are in your Son, Jesus Christ. And even for those of us who, who are not in Christ, we are only existing be, because you and your kindness have, have been merciful, a mercy that's, that's found in your Son, Jesus, that holds the universe together by your great kindness and love. Father, we repent. We repent of ways in which we have refused to love the things that you love. And we desire that you would do whatever it takes in our lives to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. Father, burn away the things that, that, that are sin. Burn away our, our idols. Cause them to, to be removed, not by our own works, not by our own abilities, but by your incredible grace. Not so that our lives would be miserable without the, all these fun things, but so that we can find our joy and our satisfaction and our delight in you and in you alone. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.